Hi guys, it's your host, Sharon, and you're listening to The Will of Vessels. What's up to my Will of Vessels family? I wanted to hop on really quickly and do a bonus episode for you since today was such a major day in our country. It's November 7th, and I'm taping this after finding out that Joe Biden has just won the U.S. presidential election and is now the president-elect of the United States. Well, this win has been largely attributed to the Black voter turnout, especially that of Black women largely across the following states, Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, especially. Bloop, bloop. Uh, That is where I'm from by way of St. Louis. (laughs) Um, Also, Stacey Abrams, who killed it in Georgia, meaning she killed my phone with text messages, Jesus Christ telling me to come out and vote. I was like, lady, girl, (laughs) I'm not in Atlanta, Georgia, okay? Um, Also, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Las Vegas. So these states really came out and showed out, regardless of, you know, what the political opinions are. um, These are some states that really came out and, and, you know, really pushed for their side. So I want, the reason I'm coming on today is because I want to discuss, you know, um, a really, really big topic. So during the election and up until today, November 7th, I've been doing my regular, you know, like perusing of social media. And I follow lots of different types of people with different backgrounds and beliefs. And I don't really believe in groupthink, so to say. So I follow a little bit of everything from, you know, all sorts of different backgrounds. And I'm going to leave the names out of this because I don't like to be messy. But um, I do follow quite a bit of evangelical leaders, which for the sake of the conversation, you know, I am referring to white Christians. Let's make white and black up. It's not a bad word. Don't start getting scared. We're just going to talk about some facts. We're going to get some understanding around some things and it's going to be good. You're going to leave this this um, this episode educated, informed, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. Okay. so anyway, I also follow a lot of black Christian leaders as well or black Protestants. um, And and I noticed like a stark difference between white evangelicals and black evangelicals or black Protestants, just for the sake of differentiating here during the election. And I'd say about roughly 80 to 90% of them were clearly voicing um, to me, you know, just reading between the lines um, as a black woman myself, I could tell that they were not as much Trump fans. And I, but I did notice that they were quite silent. They didn't really talk about who they were voting for. They, from what I noticed, um, tried to remain pretty um, down the middle or tried not to have like an, a, a political opinion. Um, and I noticed also that they didn't quote um, or 
quote unquote prophesy <laughs> that Biden would like win or um, announce um, their support, you know, from what I could tell. So what I also noticed is that on the other side, the white evangelical side. Oh, I do want to make one more note too, though. I did notice though that anytime something racial would happen, like, you know, within the country, that they would be kind of, you know, peeved, <laughs> upset, you know, um, and would hint at um, being anti-Trump's actions. So, you know, I also noticed that on the white evangelical side, that they were pretty much 100% um, pro-Trump, um, donned him as like God, God's man or God's voice. I also noticed that there were a lot, 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 lot of um, evangelical leaders who prophesied that he would win a second term. And, you know, um, I also noticed a level just to be transparent and honest, of idolatry and pride on that side, where I'll say on the more liberal side, or I'll say black side, uh, it was, you know, some anger, some sick and tiredness <laughs> of racial events and what they felt like was race, race baiting. So um, that's what I noticed on, on the two sides. And the reason that I'm saying this is because um, I saw consistently all the way through the win of Biden that there was um, a lot of comments about black people being pawns that they had ignorantly or wrongly or unbiblically voted their skin color and that it is hurting um, the kingdom of God and is wrong. And I noticed that uh, sort of like black Trump supporting evangelicals that they, you know, have put out lots. I'll leave and I'm trying to leave everything nameless, but they've put out a lot of um, videos with like, you know, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of likes and comments from uh, white evangelicals that have been pumping them sort of as like as like the voice of for of the voice of white evangelicals to the black community to say the things that they either can't say or don't have the access to say, um, or I'll say the pipeline to the black community to say, um, to get them to stop voting um, based on what they believe uh, to be wrongly perceived racial issues. And um, I think a top comment that I'd say that I've seen um, is that, Black people are being used by the media and racism is not an issue today. And, you know, they just keep falling for it instead of voting their Bible. And another comment I, I keep reading, uh, I feel like I've seen these comments a million times now, um, is like sort of this comment of like, I, I feel really bad for black people. They don't know that the media is using them and that Dems don't care about them. And yet they always fall for the fake news and the race baiting from the media. And it's all just a plot from the Democrats to get them to vote, right? They're pawns in the game. And so I wanted to talk about that. I want to talk about the black vote and why they vote their skin color. I want to present the argument to you that black people are 
voting their skin color and why it is voting their Bible. Okay, so I want to give more context. I'll start by doing this, which is explaining the two sides a little bit more, especially for those. I have some listeners that are out of the country and I want to make sure that they have an understanding for how this works um, and, and what it's like here. So white evangelicals are usually most reliably conservative and Republican voters in, elect, um, in the electorate, while black Christians are pretty consistently Democratic voters. Now, I think it's pretty common knowledge that you can't lump them all together. And that's due to like, you know, the history of religion, race and politics in the U.S. However, here, evangelicals, um, white evangelicals remain the face of Christianity in media, though that isn't factually correct. They don't represent the entirety of Christians in America. And what ends up happening when they are the face um, or it is, quote unquote, like the right way. Um, they are the face of what is, quote unquote, like the right way to vote. It becomes very one sided and voting you know, your Bible in its current definition will mean voting conservative. Um, and any group that votes outside of that is labeled as evil, not real Christians, you know, not really saved or, you know, um, quote unquote, progressive Christians, which is a bad label. And so, um, you know, I, I just sort of feel like the evangelical vote, it does not simply belong to Republicans and glossing over liberal Christians and their perspective is really dangerous. It gives the false idea that only white evangelical opinions are what count and anything else is wrong. That mindset is really what we're fighting here because it's largely born out of supremacy um, to believe that only your opinion reigns supreme and is the ultimate or final say of God on a subject. So I want to give the other side of that today because I haven't really heard this being discussed much. For some reason, I just find that black voters are often silent. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think that's for a lot of different reasons, but that I that I won't bother going into today, but they're largely silent. Um, and, you know, they... <laughs> They will just I'll say about I think it's about 83 percent vote um, Democratic. So we're going to break that down today. So I want to give a quick overview of what this conversation will consist of. We're going to break down why black people vote their skin complexion and why they believe they're voting their Bibles when doing so. The history behind that and how we got here how them voting their skin color has been echoed as wrong in this generation and why you should think more deeply before stating they are wrong for doing so. And this is especially because um, I actually think I will touch on whites largely being Republicans since the 60s and their stance on race as well and how they're actually very much intertwined. So black folks are not the only ones really probably going to be surprising for a lot of white folks. So please stay tuned. Now, before I jump into the meat of why black people are voting their skin color, as it's, you know, referred to, um, I want to give a reason why, you know, um, they felt voting against Trump was absolutely voting their Bible. I noticed that a lot of white evangelicals, or I'm just going to say for the sake of the rest of this conversation, 
evangelicals are white. That's largely how it's treated, um, you know, with polling. So I'm just going to, instead of say white evangelicals, I'm just going to say evangelicals. Okay. Now we both know what that means. All right. Um, so, um, I want to give you the reason why, um, Democrats in general felt voting against Trump was absolutely voting their Bible and, uh, why, um, Democrat voters are largely upset with evangelical Trump supporters. And to be honest, uh, you know, like I said, this goes beyond the black Christian voter. This really expands to even the Republican gone Democrat Christian voter, which there was a lot of uh, in the 2020 election. So I want to start by pulling a letter by John Pavlovitz. I think if I said your last name wrong, I am so sorry. <laughs> Please forgive me. Um, but I'm going to pull uh, a letter from we're going to call him Pastor John. I think he did used to be a pastor. Not sure of what he does now, but definitely has a career ministry um, because he explained it a lot better than I did. Now, I do want to know I'm not a follower of John. I don't know much about him. I just read his letter. So don't go aligning me with folks. A lot of times I will pull quotes when something echoes a sentiment of myself or of many. And this letter did echo the sentiment of many in these past years. So I'm going to paraphrase his letter and I'm going to add a little bit of my own flair as well. Um, but this is what he said to Trump supporters. They've found you to be hypocritical, inconsistent, and incredibly selective, um, and having incredibly selective mercy, and your religion to be thinly veiled in front of supremacy. Small note really quick before I go on, try to come into this with an open heart. I always try to say that in my, in my episodes, have an open, open heart, try to put down all of your um, you know, defenses, try not to be offended, try to just be, you know, just be, just listen, just try to have an open mind, an open heart, and open ears. So it says, they've found you to be hypocritical, insist, inconsistent, and incredibly, um, with, um, with incredibly selective mercy, and your religion to be thinly veiled in front of supremacy. Pre-Obama, politics and church rarely crossed over, but for eight years, once a black president went into office, they watched evangelicals demonize him. A man faithfully married for 26 years, a doting father, and husband without a hint of moral scandal or the slightest whiff of infidelity. They watched you deny his personal faith convi convictions of being Christian, though he stated numerous times um, that he was. Uh, you argued his birthplace assail his character all without cause or evidence they saw you brandish scriptures to malign him and use the laziest of racial stereotypes to criticize him and though it um, and through it all Christians uh, you never once suggested that God placed him where he was after 44 white presidents in a multi-ethnic country though Romans 13 1 tells us that he does you never publicly offered prayers for him and his family. 
You never welcomed him to your Christian university or churches. You never gave him the benefit of the doubt in any instance. You never spoke of offering him forgiveness or mercy. Your evangelists never publicly thanked God for his leadership. Your pastors never took to the pulpit to offer um, solidarity with him. You never made any effort to affirm his humanity or show the love of Jesus to him in any quantifiable measure. You violently opposed him at every single turn without offering a single ounce of grace. You claim to be the heart of your faith tradition. You jettisoned Jesus as you dispensed damnation on him. And yet today you openly give a mulligan to a white Republican man so riddled with depravity, so littered with extramarital affairs, so unapologetically file with such a vast resume of moral filth that the mind boggles even the unsaved can see he isn't a reflection of Christ and the change in you is unmistakable it has been an astonishing conversion to behold with him you suddenly find religion with him you're now willing to offer absolution with him all is forgiven without repentance or admission or glory to God with him you're suddenly able to see some deeply buried heart with him sin has become unimportant compassion no longer a requirement with him you see only providence and half of America sees it all clearly. They recognize the toxic source of duality. They feel that pigmentation and party are your sole religion. They feel that you aren't interested in perpetuating the love of God or emulating the heart of Jesus. They feel that you aren't burdened to love the least or to be agents of compassion or to care for your neighbors as yourself, whether they are Muslim, gay, African, or female. They feel that all you're really interested in doing is making a God in your own white image and demanding the world bow down to it. They recognize this all about white European American Republican Jesus, not the accurate account of a brown skin Jesus of Nazareth. And I know you don't realize it. But you're digging your own grave in these days, the grave of your very faith tradition, your willingness to align yourself with cruelty is a costly marriage. Yes, you've gained a Supreme Court seat a few months with the presidency as a mouthpiece, the cheap high of temporary power, but you've lost a whole lot more. You've lost an audience with millions of wise, decent, good-hearted, faithful people with eyes to see the ugliness. You've lost any moral high ground and spiritual authority with a generation. You've lost a semblance, any, you've lost any semblance of Christ-likeness. You've lost the plot. You've swapped two sins for a legion of sins. And most of all, you've lost your soul in the process. I know you'll dismiss these words. The fact that you've made your bed with such malice shows how far gone you are and how insulated you are from the reality in front of you. But I had to at least try and reach you. It's what Jesus would do if he still matters to you. Now, I know that that 
letter might have felt a bit harsh. And I know that my evangelical listeners would likely disagree with that letter. But I only ask of one thing that you would separate yourself from the group think within your inner circles and that you would pray and seek your word, seek God, hear the other side with an open heart, listen, and go back and reflect on these words. Really think about it. Find a fellow Democrat, find a liberal black person that's Christian, talk to them, try to understand their side. As many black Christians have done with, you know, the conservative side, but they have, after thinking about that, they've really waited. I hear the conversations constantly. Um, and also since, you know, it's, it's arguable that, you know, uh, the sort of white perspective is the default in our country. We have to know the perspectives, ins and outs. But many times people are completely unaware, uninformed and uneducated around our stances, our views and perspectives and the big why behind it beyond, you know, surface um, explanations of it, which don't, you know, provide much validity behind why we come to the conclusions as black people that we do. So that's all that I ask. Um, now for so long, black people, especially black Christians have been really bullied for voting based on their skin complexion. I'd say this is something that's more of a, you know, newer thing, but it's interesting because, you know, black people are very well known for holding very conservative values due to their Christian roots. And, um, pastor Phil, um, I believe his last name is Vischer. So sorry. As you know, if I chop up your name, it is my greatest apology to you. Um, but I came across his um, YouTube channel and it was really this particular video he had on the topic. Same topic. Very, very good. I'm going to put it in my link of sources uh, beneath this episode and you, you know, can feel free to check it out on your own. But he said something that was really great and I want to quote him. So. He began to discuss how black people were largely Republican until the compromise of 1877, which felt like a betrayal at the hands of the Republican Party. The Ku Klux Klan began to be pretty rampant in the South. So then um, after that came the Great Migration as they, you know, were taking over and actually doing a lot of policing. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, after the Great or during the Great Migration, Black people began to move to places like Chicago and Philadelphia because uh uh, once they got there, they realized that blacks could vote in the North. Um, and neither party at that time seemed to care for black people. So at that time, 
the NAACP argued that they shouldn't be loyal to either party. So they weren't as neither even attempted to care for or meet their needs. Now, once the depression hit, they were hit twice as hard. Americans of all backgrounds found hope in the New Deal of Franklin Roosevelt, who was Democratic, and he gained the black support and followed that um, followed that was the first Democrat in Congress following that. Over the following years, black blacks voted both sides. They were both progressives and liberals and both parties. There were there were progressives and liberals in both parties and they were progressives and literal um, liberals in both parties. Uh, but from 1953 to 1965, more than 120 civil rights measures were considered and killed by the Senate Judiciary Committee, which was controlled by Dems and Republicans. As the years went by, many more civil rights efforts were proposed by civil Democrats than Republicans. Southern Democrats still denied their bills as well as conservatives. But then, mark this name, Strom Thurmond came around and he was a Southern Democrat um, and he served as governor. Now, he protested uh, by using his Southern Party um, I be believe they were called the Dixie something. I'm going to I'll come back to the name of the party that he put together. But they were dedicated to preserving segregation rights through something called state rights. They've called it they called it state rights. So Thurman ran for president in 1948. And in a sample of one of his speeches, he said, there's not enough room um, there's not enough troops in the army to force the Southern people to break down segregation and admit the Negro race into our theaters, into our swimming pools, into our homes and into our churches. He then went on to uh, lose to President Truman, but he spent another 20 years in the Senate as a Southern Democrat and fought to maintain segregation in the South. Then in the 1960s, the civil rights protests began to heat up in the South and JFK won the White House. And he refused to take a strong stand at that time on racism because he did not want to lose his supporters. But then he eventually spoke up and called it a moral issue and promised a civil rights bill. But then five months later, after he announced that, he was assassinated. Well, nothing will divide this country quicker and espouse violence like good old racism. So um, Lyndon Johnson was his successor and he vowed to finish the fight for civil rights for JFK. He passed the legislation that would end segregation in America. And well, segregation is like Thurman and, um, you know, other segregationists, they were very, very upset. And as a Southern Democrat, he led the charge because he felt like this was the last straw. He led the charge to announce that he was going over to the Republican um, Republican side. And that was in 1964. So the exit and the switch up of, um, you know, or separation, so to say, of, you know, Democrat and Republican I'd say even in its latest form was uh, the separation began out of people being segregationist. Interesting 
fact. So uh, they jumped over into the Republican Party in droves and uh, the South began to shift from blue to red. Now, fast forward to uh, Richard Nixon. He was a Republican. He tried to win voters through his message of law and order. Uh, a Southern strategy focusing on Sun Belt, Belt states who felt the country was changing too fast and heading in the wrong direction. So he had no desire and admittedly did not appeal to urban liberals or black voters. He felt he did not need to and did not want to. And he won. Now, fast forward to 1980, Ronald Reagan raised eyebrows, still um, quoting my good pastor here from a YouTube name, Phil Vischer. I'm encouraging you to go check out his video. But um, in 1980, Ronald Reagan raised eyebrows by launching his campaign in the Deep South by pledging support of states' rights of state rights which was taken as a coded appeal to dixiecrats now thurman he was the one that created the dixiecrats now um he created a coded appeal to the dixiecrats um the old states rights party of the segregate segregationalist uh democrat thurmond and he did that in the Mississippi County, which was the site of the murder of three civil rights workers. And that did not help his appearance of being, you know, racial, race, racially biased. I don't have a better way to say it. Um, but between 1968 to 1988, the Republican Party had become the party of white Christian conservative Americans and Democrats and have become the party of radical progressive leftists. Um, and the, oh, sorry, between let me let me say that again. <laughs> between 1968 and 1988, the Republican Party had become the party of white Christian conservative Americans, and then the De Democrats, separate, um, had become the party of radical progressive leftists and hippies and black Christians. So According to Pastor here, he explains why black Christians are politically different by stating they are socially conservative, theologically conservative, but they are not politically conservative because their history and life experiences are vastly different. Ditto. When white people look at the Supreme Court, for example, they see the reason abortion is legal and school prayer isn't. When black people look at the Supreme Court, they see the reason they can vote and pursue housing and employment without blatant discrimination. Factoid. OK, that difference has a huge impact as whether you can see government as a part of the problem problem or the solution. Having the right to hear a Christian prayer doesn't mean much if you're not allowed to attend your local public school. If you even think about the words of progressive and conservative. A progressive believes things should be improved by making progress, by moving forward, by progressing. While a conservative believes the good things we presently presently have are at risk of being lost and need to be conserved or even revived from the past. So it's simply what do we see when we look in our rearview mirror white people see a simpler time when everyone went to church when we prayed in school when black christians look in the mirror they see something different they see racism they see lynching they see church bombings they see strom 
Thurman, who said we will never let black people into our churches. And they see white Christians applauding Thurman for saying that and then reelecting him to the Senate for five long decades until he dies in office at 2000 um, in 2003 at the age of 100. There are other issues, other issues conservative white people see sin mostly as an individual problem, wrongs committed by one person against another, requiring only individual confessions and repentance as the solution, while black Christians see racism as a systemic problem, sinful systems needing broader solutions and broader confession and repentance, meaning turning away completely from that sin. So one party is for the people who want things to change while one party is for the people who want things to stay the same. The Bible calls us to hold on to what is good while also working towards what is best to conserve and progress. Neither party lines, um, neither party lines up well with that. So neither party is completely right. This is how you can read the um, same Bible and come to different conclusions about who is going to get their vote. Wow. I think that um, the pastor, Vischer, he really, really, really nailed that uh, very well. And you know, I, I, I can't say enough good things about how he broke that down. I hope that helps give you some clarity as to how we got here on the technical side, you know, historically from like a high level perspective. And now I want to present the argument to you from the vision of black folks. Now, from the perspective of black Christians, they have been fighting through voting, through protests, through legislation, largely nonviolently against the evils of this world for over 400 years. And they have done it biblically. They've largely fought it alone without support or care or help through the majority of their fight. Until this day, they mostly fight this battle with God on their side and in their opinions I do largely agree with that um, as he is a, a supporter of justice and fights against injustice on our behalf. And so in this long, seemingly never ending nightmare um, as one group, we are the only group that has our own back uh, that has our back in general. If we don't fight, for ourselves for ourselves nobody's gonna fight for us and so there's no one else looking out for our best interests no matter what field we speak of from healthcare to governmental systems to education to housing you name it there is no one fighting for us but us and so asking us to fight for you know other causes that do not progress our cause that is also important is selfish. It's, it's, it's actually selfish. So um, don't worry, I'm going to explain why. And so if we don't fight for anything, nothing's going to get done. And, you know, we won't have equality. And if people didn't fight for it in the past, we wouldn't be free. So if they didn't fight, 
we still be enslaved today and white evangelicals would still be answering to God for enslaving, enslaving us as a completely deceived people, hopelessly believing that they are right and that they are in their word accurately. We all know that today to be untrue. So to fight us, you know, for fighting against the thing that, in my opinion, saved this nation, um, I think it's it's crazy. And if you add another 20 years on to this, I think the evangelicals that will uh, that will exist, let's say even 50 years from now, will look back and say that today's evangelicals were wrong. And I'd argue they they'd say that they voted in support of racism. Uh, and so you might not agree with that, but stay with me. We don't have to agree right now. I just ask that you think about it. So yes, um, black people are fighting and have fought for the blinders to be removed from American eyes. And they've been fighting with their Bibles for 400 years, (laughs) flat out rightly, flat out rightly. So follow me now as I break down how they've been doing so in the last half of the hour. So I want to specifically speak about how they've been doing this against the following sins and wrongs and wrong um, or or evil laws um, that were brought up against them. So, you know, they've been fighting against injustice and oppression and enslavement itself which by the way the bible calls lawless and we have uh frederick Douglass, william lloyd garrison harriet beecher stowe and john brown plus many many more um, freedom fighters and abolitionists to thank for that these are all people who helped fight for the eradication of slavery which by the way even back then I'd say, you know, uh, white America really cried foul all the way through. And uh, we even heard of a a more recent quote whom I am failing to remember the guy's name who still sort of cried foul about it just what last month, (laughs) maybe two months ago. Um, And it caused, you know, quite a bit of a stir that that People felt that they still had the right to enslave black people, which, by the way, you know, most black people feel that make America great again. That is directly related to. So there goes that looking through the rearview mirror thing again. There's no way you're going to get them to vote for that. So um, anyways, you know, it's it's really interesting because during that time, the ones that crawled that called foul were what would have been today's evangelical. Uh, These were largely white Christians. um, And they were, you know, the same theologians that today seminary schools have up high on their walls as slaveholders who were pro-slavery and pro-injustice. And dare I say that many of them were not reflecting the heart of God or bearing the fruit of God, because when you do, you'll be a reflection of him. You won't be a reflection of hate. You won't be a reflection of slavery. You'll be a reflection of freedom. You'll want everybody to be free because you'll have the heart of 
Christ, the mind of Christ, um, you'll, you'll be one with the spirit of God. And when you are one with the spirit of God, you want what he wants. So there's something wrong when the larger group does not because God is for freedom as you yourself are free moral agents. And you should look different from the world around you when you are a reflection of Christ and a free moral agent at the same time, or I should say a slave to Christ. And you should begin to resemble and bear um, or bear resemblance to him instead of bearing resemblance to the world around you. So being that, so being um, in, you know, quote unquote, uh, old culture during that time, it was not an excuse. <laughs> it wasn't an excuse. Uh, being like Christ should make you separate from everybody else. So hence my personal opinion, which I don't even know if I would call it personal. I just think it's doctrine. Um, they weren't filled with Christ. They, they couldn't have been just by pure definition. They couldn't have been. They were religious, but they weren't filled with Christ. And largely, uh, black people as a whole feel that. And that may come as a surprise. But this is the perspective, um, especially as a group of people, not all, of course, but a group of people who largely a lot of them, you know, um, a lot of them are really walking with him, you know, um, now, again, I'm not talking about the entire culture of black people, but I'm saying um, there are a, a pretty significant group of them, especially older black women um, that are walking with Christ. And, and, and they therefore they know they know what it looks like. They know what it is to uh, be a reflection of him. They know what it is to pick up your cross and truly follow him. They know what it is to be applicational in your faith at every part and for you to die to yourself and die to your flesh and to become an actual um, living sacrifice for you to lay down your life for everything he's calling you to do and to put down all of your old man that did doesn't look like him and to know as you get closer and closer and spend more and more time with him that parts of you that are ugly and do not reflect him they die more and more every day and when you are really going through that process you know when people are not actually going through that process in a heartbeat it won't take much time. Give them a couple of sentences and you can look and see the fruit is not from his tree. And so anyway, I'll, <laughs> I'll move on from that. So some more sins, wrongs and evil laws black people have been, um, fighting against includes fighting for fair treatment by the police since like day one. Um, they haven't ever received that till this day. And I have a theory as to why they have not received that. But back in the 1700s, um, let's break down the fact that it didn't start as the police. It started as what they call slave patrols. Some people know that some people don't. But during those times, even before that, um, colonists were writing laws that restricted slaves and 
limited their rights, such as bartering goods through um, creating things like slave codes. And the first groups of armed white men who monitored and enforced discipline upon black slaves in the U.S. southern states were slave patrols. They functioned as the police and their sole job was to police black people from escaping or who were, viewed, who were viewed as rebellious and defiant. So it was during this time that black people really began to be subjected to like harassment and, you know, constant questioning and random searches. And this is where the criminali- criminalization of black people as troublemakers um, and rebel rousers really began in 1704. So... If you were walking while black during this time without your slave master, you were breaking what was called a slave code. And this was like a list of wrongful laws related to enslaved people. And out of that, state militia groups were born and fugitive slave laws were born. And the police was never uh, created in favor of this group of people. The police began... um, as slave catchers to return them to their masters for imprisonment through chattel slavery. And it was during this time that black people fought to create the underground railroad to help black people escape the police, to escape the slave catchers whom they rightfully did not trust (laughs) and to reach uh, freedom in Northern States and in Florida um, because they used to negotiate with the Spanish government and native Americans to live free lives there. And out of those slave patrols also, by the way, was born the Ku um, Ku Klux Klan who continued to create terror for black people. They terrorized black people um, and they also patrolled them as kind of like policemen um, as the police we know is today. So there has never been trust between black people and the police. And it's because it was created literally to catch them, to keep them enslaved. And just because something is the law doesn't make it right. So, um, you know, these are great and enormous reasons why they fight. And, I think that my theory behind why till this till this day there is not any peace, understanding or reconciliation between the two is because the two were never united one and two. How can blessings come out of, let's say, for example, witchcraft? How can blessings come out of something like idolatry? You know, can it? It cannot. I argue it cannot. Even even when God is working all things together for your good, you are not going to turn witchcraft into something good. It's not going to happen. If it's born out of, let's say, for example, Satanism, you can't turn it into a God thing. It's just not going to happen. So why is it so hard to understand that um, the police being born out of such a sin and injustice such as slave catching? Why is it hard to understand that that cannot reap well for America as a whole, as a whole, as a whole, not one group, as a whole. Um, And it can't reap well for this specific group of people. And when they cry foul, they mean it. They're not pawns. They're not stupid. They mean it. Um, They're not just seeing things. They mean it. They've had 400 years, 400 years 
400 years of knowing what racism looks like. So they're not going to, how much sense does it make for you as someone who doesn't understand racism, hasn't walked in those shoes as a black person in America to tell them what racism looks like and tell them what racism is when you most of the time are completely unaware of their history, the ins and out of that thing, their um, oral passing down of their history and stories it's you and their daily lives you know it's like the audacity the audacity I need you to think about the audacity of that is crazy so you know I just feel like that can't reap well for our group of people until it's overhauled and reestablished apart from the foundation of racism whatever is at the root of a thing that is what fruit it must bear. An apple tree cannot bear oranges, nor can it try. <laughs> you could try all day and, you know, an apple tree still won't bear oranges. Unless you replace or replant with the proper seeds for that thing to grow the correct fruit and bear good fruit, you know, that thing will bear evil fruit. Even if the whole thing uh, as, as a large, as a whole is not evil, it's going to bear, if it was planted for evil, it's going to bear evil fruit. And that's just the facts. So does that mean that the police is all bad? No, I'm not saying that the police is all bad, but was it born out of something wicked? Yes. Yes, it was for the proper, uh, the, the prosperity and the greed of white America to enslave wrongly for life chattel slavery was wrong it was wrong and it was funded by slaveholders it was wrong and so you know I'm gonna have a future episode on this very topic the evolution and breakdown of the police and their relationship with black people um, but for now I'm gonna move on from that and we're gonna talk about more of the fighting of the laws against the evils and the wrongs and so um black and white allies have also fought through um, voting and legislation to end things like fugitive slave laws we've had an entire civil war to stop slavery we fought against black codes different from slave codes for the civil rights act against jim crow laws and um in the civil rights movement for fair employment practices for fair housing and equal opportunities in 1968, the executive order of one, one, two, four, six against discrimination based upon color in 1965 in unending amount of federal court decisions from 1830 to 2014, such as Brown versus board of education, the 15th amendment for voting rights and civil rights crime act of 2007. The list is endless of our fruit, our footprints where we have not stopped fighting for equal rights. We fought against abuse, murder, lynchings of black people based on their race, which white evangelicals, by the way, used to go and watch after Sunday church service or before Sunday church service. Mm. Inequality, unrighteous laws, partial and prejudice laws, unfair treatment and discrimination of the poor and brown people bearing false witness against them for the imprisonment or execution um, for um, imprisonment or execution, not allowing them voting rights in 
voter suppression, not loving black people as your neighbor, not paying wages or fair wages to them when forced to work for whites or employed by whites, killing black people without trial and conviction and having their trials and executions on sidewalks or trees or anywhere else for that matter, beating God out of them and hiding the gospel from them. That's right. We were not um, forced to convert to Christian. It was actually hid from us and kept from us. Um, And one of the large reasons why we were not allowed to read in America for many, many years was because if we read the Bible, that we would know that we had the right to freedom. My God. And so uh, anyways, (laughs) um. So like I said, beating God out of them, hiding the gospel from them, keeping them from marriage and um, blocking marriage and intermarriage laws, bearing hatred in their hearts towards black people, especially as their feather, um, fellow brethren, breaking up their families, fighting against that, forcing them to commit adultery through the entirety of slavery and through the 1960s, because many don't realize how many mixed black people of today were not brought into this world by choice, but because they were raped and forced to remain silent by white authoritative figures such as doctors and dentists. I know I have my great grandmother who bore a white child two generations ago through rape of her white doctor. So um, you're probably tired of this list. I know I am tired of saying this list, but um, you know, these are things we need to hear. These are things we need to reflect on, you know, I'd also say that white Americans have attempted to minimize this as a menial issue for generations, you know, after generations, they've fought using like black tokens to echo their opinions and try to marginalize black people and silence them and keep them in line, you know, by using what we call house Negroes. Now, everybody might not agree with that, but they still exist till today. And it's, it's a real thing. Um, I'll refrain from using names, but, um, you know, the thing about it is you cannot read your Bible for longer than three pages and not see the principle of justice. God speaks out against injustice and the protection of the poor and the oppressed. It is the pride of white America and their bias that would have us all believe that any issue is greater than the issue of oppression, murder and enslavement of black people, of an entire group of people without true repentance, which means to turn away from completely, by the way, or repayment of any kind. There's never been any repayment. There's not been an apology. There's not been true repentance. And so we still have a fight here. There's not been equality, complete equality. You know, oppression and those issues that I've listed are just as important to God you know, than any other issue you believe is dear to God's heart, God's heart. And in the name of injustice, you know, over 60 million black people have died. Selah. Solely in the U.S. And that isn't even an accurate record because black lives were so insignificant to people, to white people in America, that we didn't even count as three fifths of a person for almost 300 years. And our dead bodies were not recorded because they didn't matter. Right. They didn't matter. That doesn't even include the millions that died on ships 
or across the Americas in general, such as Brazil, which, by the way, have 46 percent of the black slaves. And, you know, in comparison to our U.S. slaves, which was only 4 percent, 36 percent in the Caribbean, 14 percent in Spanish America. And to this day, we don't have an accurate account of the millions that died across the entire diaspora again because it wasn't important enough to keep record. And in Brazil, you know, till today, they're constantly finding mass graves in the ground of upwards of 1,000 to 50,000 black bodies just thrown in as frivolous casualties that they build luxury condos on top of, by the way. It isn't even a place that should, that is seen as um, honorable. It's not reverenced. How sad. How unfortunate, how wrong, how wrong. And let's talk about the Atlantic Ocean, you know, because at least 1.5 million black bodies lay decomposing and turned into ashes on the ocean floors. That's 1.5 million wasted purposes. 1.5 million people made in God's image who were denied the right to live and be free and denied a future generation of up to 2000 descendants per person over a couple of hundred years. You might be thinking you sound mighty mad. It's a holy anger. I assure you it's a holy anger. And that is a biblical thing. Um, I'm not mad, but I am mad at what happened. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. And it's just swept under the rug. It's wrong. And when other atrocities take place across the world, America speaks out. But look at how it treats and has treated its own people. Look at its own history that it has yet to truly come clean about to truly come clean about and face how can one reconcile without repentance? It can't be done. How can one unify um, something that has never been unified, that was never in unity? So think about that. Um, also, we don't really have to stop with slavery, you know, because we can discuss today. There are plenty of issues for today, but I, I like to bring up things in history because I think people need to understand where things were born out of and how we ended up where we are today. But if we're going to talk about today, you know, we can talk about how white people make up 61 to 77 percent of the population and black people only 13 percent of the population. Yet black people are missing at a much higher and disproportionate rate. Over 75,000 black girls are currently missing. Many of them kidnapped or murdered through other forms of violence and at a more dis um, disproportionate rate than any other group. In the majority of their cases, they go cold. They don't have um, great investigations, very poor investigations, some not investigated at all, actually quite a bit not investigated at all. There is zero awareness around majority of those cases. Most of them never even see one news story, not one. But our stories deserve coverage, but they won't cover them. Only 30 percent or less of our stories even make it to the media. And though we are just as much citizens as white America is, for some reason, we aren't treated like that down to every issue. Both our media platforms that are online and offline instead choose to unjustly cover the majority or all white cases for the majority only, even on YouTube. Those, you know, um, missing persons YouTube channels, largely 90 
to 95% covering all white, white people, white women, especially called the um, missing white women syndrome. Look it up. It's a real thing. (laughs) So, um, you know, my point is that we do not have equal rights. We are still being oppressed and it's quite audacious for, you know, um, America to try to tell us otherwise. It's audacious to tell us to remain silent. It's audacious to tell us how to vote and especially to vote outside of our best interests. Black people will continue to vote against oppression of their skin and to be seen, excuse me, the same way that God sees them as equal and is equally important in his eyes as abortion. It, and I'd say that, and I feel, I feel emboldened to say that because inequality has been a stink, a stink in his nose for over 400 years. Voting, you know, is one of the only ways black people can fight that outside of prayer. So attempting to call them pawns is a miss. It is uninformed, it's unfair, it's uncultured, it's disrespectful, it's discriminatory, and an infringement of one's rights. Evangelicals may feel that this is uninformed, but what seems to be misunderstood or nonsense to um, evangelicals is that black people don't get the luxury of focusing on other issues as much as we would love to. You think we wouldn't? We we would love to be able to focus on other issues. Do you know how tired we are of waking up and having to deal with being black? We didn't ask for this. We are not in love with our struggle and our plight. We've learned to love ourselves, our struggle and our plight, but we are not in love. We wish we didn't have it which is why, you know, a lot of people turn into token blacks because they want to escape it. They'll do anything to escape it. But for the rest of us, we accept it as our fight and we make it our lives fight. And, and nobody can tell us that we aren't called to do so because it is our fight that's gotten us this far and has progressed us. It's our fight, you know, along with white allies that have helped us put this country on track because it started out all wrong. And so, you know, black people don't get the luxury of focusing on other issues. Have you noticed that black people aren't usually participating in fights for causes outside of their own? You know, I know that's a general statement. There are exceptions, but I'm speaking largely for the whole here. Do you notice that blacks are usually absent from fighting for things like, uh, for example, saving the whales or climate change? The reason for that is that they don't have the luxury. Black people are literally either individually fighting to survive poverty and oppression, fighting to break a thousand glass ceilings at the same time. You know, whether that be in corporate America or starting a business or, you know, uh, in in the basketball, working in NBA or baseball league or, or whatever, fighting to change for um, fighting to change um, create change in their families or fighting, you know, for the whole of our communities as a group to progress past 400 years. I know you're tired of that number, but it's true. And we have to think about it. We have to reflect on 400 years of hardships, 400 years of trials, tribulations, handicaps and restrictions and hindrances. You know, there's not a single other group that has dealt with this level of atrocities, oppression and poverty and pain, you know, and separations like black people have. This is, 
you know, a people whose history didn't begin with African slavery, but it was interrupted by African slavery and their identities were erased. We can't trace back who we are. You wonder why so many black people act lost today. Do you know what it is not to have an identity, an identity, an identity? Even Jesus is based in his identity, your identity. It makes up where you go, what you become. You know what I mean? If you're not based in anything, you're not rooted in an identity. You can end up lost as a whole, as a whole group lost. That's never properly reflected or studied upon the effects of lacking an identity and how it has affected us as a whole, as a group. It's not right. And it's unfair. It's not fair. You know, we we've had our identities erased. Like I said, in our names, they've been changed. You know, we haven't been we weren't allowed to speak in our natural tongue. Our our families were stripped from us. We couldn't even educate our young. Our life wasn't free. We entered into chattel slavery for for forever upon multiple generations the life expectancy for a slave was eight years in brazil the life expectancy for a slave in america was 20 years over time we lost our culture we lost our language we lost our history it was 100 percent forgotten and erased we've only got a 23 and me <laughs> you know test we can take to figure out where we might be from where we might be from. It started in America with us at the bottom. Our history has been rewritten over and over. School history textbooks often leave out our plights, give us a, or give us a very quick section of a a couple of sentences or a paragraph with the contribution of blacks being handed over to white men No thank you, no honor, no respect, no fair treatment, no payback, no make goods. We were criminalized over and over and we were left with the scraps. So I want you to really think about that. And and what's really funny about that, too, is that it's how history repeats itself, because, you know, in the 1960s, when when Martin Luther King began to walk in his God given purpose to fight injustice. And please, 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 please spare me the claims of him being a Marxist and having imperfect doctrine, because every time every time he got on a mic, he taught Christian principles. He taught Orthodox Christian principles. And if we're going to attempt to marginalize black people by getting them to turn on those people that were called to fight um, uh, uh, God ordained battles against racial injustice, then you need to also turn and look at your own heroes who were slave holding theologians. Okay. So MLK, you know, he taught a lot of great messages. He taught that, You know, to be a messenger of peace does not mean that one is a messenger of submission, that Christians must cry out in indignation against all persecution, that being legal does not mean being right. You know, we can look at Hitler for that, that God gave all men a conscience and therefore um, they know when they're doing wrong and when laws degrade humanity and are unjust. So you can't say you didn't know. You can't say you didn't know we all were born with a conscience. 
and his fellow white brethren did not allow him in their churches. In fact, black people weren't even allowed. They weren't even allowed to 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 be in black churches. And we wonder why there's segregation today. Why it's still to this day, the MLK speech about church being the most of the 11 a.m. being the uh, 11 a.m. on Sunday being the most segregated time, you know, in America. Still to this day, it is still to this day. It is, you know, throwing revivals for Christ while blacks had to sit in the back or weren't allowed to come and experience Christ at all. So how is it that black people are supposed to be left with the burden of unifying and re um, reconciling when they aren't allowed, when they weren't allowed and still aren't largely welcome in, in white churches. You know, I was just talking to my mother today and she told me a story of a local Snailville church, um, Snailville, Georgia church. Cause my, my mother lives in Georgia, a local Snailville church um, that was all white and that, you know, she was visiting uh, and she had to get up and leave after just a few minutes because they made it very clear that they didn't want her there. We talking about today, <laughs> you know, they didn't want her there. So how does that work? America, black people have never had the power to segregate. They don't have the power to unify and mend the system that is still oppressing them and weighing them down. They're too busy trying to get the weight off their backs. They can't, they, they can't, they can't do anything else. You want them to pick up other causes, but how can they, when this one is so important and this one still has chains on their feet, they cannot, they cannot do so. God ordained them as free, yet they are not. So that is your job as a man or woman of God, as a person that has the privilege to fight for whatever you'd like, you know, if you're truly a man or woman of God, you'll get your heart right. You'll fix your heart posture for the future generations because we've struggled to see God in this and we've struggled to see God in white America. We've especially struggled to see God in white evangelicals. You know, during the time of MLK, um, white America, especially evangelicals, refused to support MLK. They were not silent. They were openly opposed to him. Granted, um, you know, as I said, we didn't have access to churches. We definitely didn't have that. We didn't have a YouTube. But um, so your, your average black person didn't know what sermons were echoing at that time as they know today what's echoing in a lot of white churches we can get on YouTube and watch one and watch a bunch of them and so we know what's happening and what's being said about us but um you know um we know that we're being told that we're wrong for fighting against racism you know in your in your average white church today this is being touted and so you know but what's funny is how history repeats itself because they called MLK and his followers rebel rousers and troublemakers and black people were so terrified of supporting MLK. And he didn't have many followers as is lar as he largely has today. The truth is that he wasn't popular when he was alive. And, you know, it's funny because the truly called usually aren't popular. And that's a big sign that they are called in the first place. You know, we know that the word tells us that the called won't be popular and it's a sign that they're false when they are. You are not greater than your master, Jesus. So you can expect when you are truly real and you are truly sticking to doctrine and you are not compromising, you'll be treated as an enemy of the state. And MLK 
was a good example of that. He was uh, with a select few and it was largely mostly only in the South where he was located and mostly blacks in the South that were supporting him while blacks nationwide were watching him and adored him on their TV screens, but they couldn't openly adore him. They couldn't um, adore him out loud. They had to adore him strictly in their hearts because they were fearful of what would happen if anybody knew that they adored him, they could lose their job. As a matter of fact, that was pretty common. You supported MLK, you lose your job. You could be murdered. You could be killed for openly supporting MLK. So there are actually, you know, there were actually people speaking against him privately and publicly. And it was the, the better thing to do if you did that as a black person to not be a follower of him but because that it was because they were fearful that he would make their lives worse so many blacks were defeated in their spirit after so many years of being beat down they couldn't fight no more they didn't even know what it was to fight they had already given up their lives were to give up and to remain silent and here comes somebody now fighting for them and it wasn't until the events of Selma where other countries began to see images on their TV of black people being mistreated with dogs being sicked on them water hosed and beat by the police and you know what's funny is they were lucky they were spared the murders seeing the murders by police on their TV screens they were spared that it's funny because we have that in 2020, eerily similar. It wasn't until other countries saw this and made calls to American leaders for the mistreatment of their people that they began to change. They were exposed to the world finally. And some, you know, some white people became allies and their hearts convicted them. And, the, um, you know, their conscious and the world cried out at the injustice. Again, eerily similar to today. Because at the same time, they were telling them it was all in their minds and that this wasn't, you know, anything that they needed to make right. And they needed to just shut up, be quiet and get over it. Same thing, eerily similar to today. It took the world to see them to begin correcting their wrongs. If it wasn't for MLK and voting black people, we would still largely be unfree persons of color in a segregated America and white America and would be answering to God for the unrepentant hearts in America, which is deceitful above all things. And who can understand it? So this is why we vote our skin color. And this is why we won't stop voting our skin color. If it wasn't for our vote, if it wasn't for our fighting, if it wasn't for a Harriet Tubman, an MLK, a, Lu, a Fannie Lou Hamer, a Sojourner Truth, a W.E.B. Du Bois, a Malcolm X, a Frederick Douglass, a Booker T. Washington, an Ida B. Wells, a John Lewis, who all fought against oppression, we would be enslaved. I want to thank them for serving our country with their lives. And lastly, I want to thank Kamala Harris, because regardless of what anybody feels of her principles today, we made history and it has been 231 years, six months and nine days of 48 white male uh, vice presidents in a multi-ethnic country. Kamala Harris will be the 49th vice president. I want you to think about that. And the best way to reflect on it really is to count it in your head. It takes you 20 seconds, 20 seconds before you get to Kamala it is a feat in this country it deserve it deserves recognition honor and respect for all that has done um, um, that has done this and she is walking 
you know, so black children across America can run without chains holding them back, holding them down or glass ceilings, keeping them from going up. The Bible calls us to honor and respect people in authority. And God says he puts leaders into position. So whether you agree or you don't, we will not be made to feel bad for fighting for equality and against oppression and injustice. This is God's will for us to fight. And voting is the way that we do that today. I thank, you know, I thank the people that have uh, answered the call of Christ on their lives to fight for um, black lives and to fight for our freedom. And today I even call on those who God is calling to pick up that torch and begin to fight today because this calling isn't just delegated to black people. Um, it's, it's for white and brown people as well. You know, we have so much work to do and, and we shouldn't feel guilty for doing that. Now, I also want to speak to uh, the black church as well because of the fact that, you know, even though uh, in the end I am saying that, you know, fighting for equality and fighting against injustice absolutely is biblical and right. And I personally am in agreement with that stance. And if that means that they vote democratic, then they, they have that right to do so um, and still be voting their Bibles. However, I will say that on the black side of things, or I'll say, you know, just in general, the more uh, politically um, liberal side of the church, that they do have a duty uh, and should also fight for religious freedom. And when policies come up, they should um, that come up on the Democratic side. We on our side should be fighting, you know, uh, and I say our side, I'm not talking about necessarily Democratic. I'm talking about um, as um, among black people um, and then also talking to liberal Christians. We should actually be fighting for, um, you know, to, to keep religious freedom. I feel that we are too silent on that issue just because we fight um, for, you know, racial equality doesn't mean that we have to be silent on everything else. We can very much be on one side and not agree with everything on that side. And I think that the black church should, you know, begin to voice things outside of, um, you know, racial lines and things that do affect us quite a bit does affect us. And so that's why I said earlier that, you know, our plate really, really is full. That's not just a cop out. However, I, I do also understand that religious freedom is important. And if we are silent on, um, you know, these issues, then it's going to hurt all of us. It's going to hurt everybody that wants to practice practice their religion that wants to practice their faith and so um and 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 want to keep those you know those beliefs there so I'd say that is the that's the thing that I'd like to say overall to you know the black the black church um and then also you know I'm gonna do this on a future episode but speaking about abortion which is another issue 
that, you know, we'll have to dig into. However, it's actually much more nuanced than I think the evangelical side actually realizes. And because black people, um, black women in particular, they get abortions at a higher rate, um, a more disproportionate rate than other groups. They, um, you know, they have an opinion and a mindset about it that I don't think is as public or uh, the other side is as aware of as they might they might think they are. And so I'm going to do a future episode. It might be another bonus episode, actually, potentially right after this, if not right after this, within like the next few months. Um, but I'm, I'm going to speak about that and, you know, the mindset of that what their mindset is on fighting it. And then also uh, my opinion about where we should be standing with that Bible wise, <laughs> uh, biblically it um, I think I will tell you now it's a bit of a different position than I think the greater majority of evangelicals have, but I am um, anti-abortion. Um, so we will be talking about that on a future episode, but my overall point is that when it comes to talking to, um, the black church that we should be more vocal instead of, well, we trust the Lord that he'll work it out. Mm -mm. We should fight. And that's one thing I will give evangelicals is that, man, when they lock on an issue and they want the, they want to fight against that issue, I can, you know, I can honestly say they really put their heart and soul as much as they possibly can into fighting for whatever, you know, it is that they, they see as uh, fighting against whatever they see is wrong and fighting whatever uh, fighting for whatever they see is right. While I feel like the black church in some ways um, we can be quite silent on, on, on some issues. And I think we should be much more vocal if we, truly truly want to advance the kingdom and so on a future episode I'm going to dig more into those things I'm going to dig more into how we can what we can all do to be advancing the kingdom and then also how if we were really doing what we were supposed to do completely wholly as a church which is evangelism um we wouldn't be in a lot of these predicaments that we currently are I'm not saying everybody would be saved however um would we be in a different position, you know, if we actually were um, preaching the gospel and more people knew who Christ was. Yes, because this is the first generation that we have that is completely unchurched, unchurched completely. And I don't mean that as far as a church building. Um, I mean that as far as they've never heard the gospel ever and, and we can even say in a lot of these churches, both on both sides, black and white, people will grow up in the church and they and we just assume because they've been there their whole lives that they've heard the gospel. And there's a lot of people who are in churches and they've never actually heard it. They know church rhetoric. They know religious rules. They knew they know all of those things, but they don't actually have a strong understanding and foundation you know, for the gospel and the correct way to live it out and to um, and what it actually means to pick up your cross and follow him. The greater majority, I'd actually say they don't know it, especially Generation Z. And so if we were doing our part, 
in not acting as if uh, the gospel has already gone throughout the world and we're finished, we wouldn't be fighting so hard to force the world to recognize the things that we recognize. Our job is to focus on the gospel. And if we focus heavily on the gospel, the fruit, the fruit will change. You know what I mean? What what we have all around us, we, it's going to look like we actually focused on the gospel versus fought and fought and fought the people through laws and, you know, through legislation to observe what we deserve and protect what we protect. And so um, that's just my take on it. Also, I realized that, uh, by the way, really quickly, I said um, Kamala's um, name wrong. And I just want to correct that. I'm so, so sorry. Y'all, I'm telling y'all when it comes to these names, I just be chopping and screwing. And I'm just, I'm so sorry. It is not Kamala. It is Kamala. Congratulations again. So I want to leave you guys with this. I want you to think about, you know, everything that I said, be prayerful about it, go back, talk to Jesus, read your Bible, reflect on it apart from other people and whatever, you know, everything that you've been told and everything that's taught in church and have a mind for yourself and really do your research, do your research, understand how we got here. I'm going to leave some really good sources um, for you guys um, in among the um, sorry, the links that are going to be underneath this, uh, especially if you're under my simple cast or YouTube channel platforms, you'll see um, a link of sources to, you know, different resources, you can just go start to read about this and have an understanding of how we got here just a little bit deeper if you are interested. And, you know, I just want you to reflect on it, you know, and, you know, jump in help, you know, we we need more people that are willing to fight for these causes and also align themselves and help bring equality to our nation because we have a lot of work to do. We're not finished. It might look like we're finished just because, you know, um, we've had um, President Obama, which I think we all now know that just because he was in office does not mean racism is extinct and over. Um, and so we have a lot of work to do. And I'm just asking that you think about it and be prayerful about it and, and think about getting involved in helping to fight that in your own way. And that doesn't necessarily mean politically, you know, it just means, you know, uh, finding a way to eradicate and, and then fight the spirit of racism and the principality of racism and bring that thing down out of our country and doing your part to help that happen. And so, yeah, you know, I leave you with that. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys for tuning in with us today. What a great, great show. I'm your host, Sharon, and this is The Will of Vessels. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to The Will of Vessels podcast and please spread the word about us. We only ask that if you really like us, share the episodes. Share the episode you loved. Just share it. That's what we want. And also, you can always find us on at Will of Vessels on Instagram. Please follow us also. And then um, the Will of Vessels on Facebook. And check us out and follow us for updates on new series and episodes. 
I hope you come back to visit us soon. For now, I won't say bye, but I'll say see you later. Thank you.